testing notes. Um, I mean, sorry, the response section for each day. The sermon this morning is simply called Devoted. Jeremiah chapter 30 from verse 18 to 24. This is what the Lord says. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tent and have compassion on his dwellings. The city will be rebuilt on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers. They will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained. Jeremiah 30 verse 20. Their children will be as in the days of old and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. And then a key verse in the big picture, their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. I will bring him near and he will come close to me. For who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people and I will be your God. See, the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In the days to come, says Jeremiah, you will understand this. The people of God were already largely in captivity at the time that this was written. The previous chapter, Jeremiah the prophet has written a letter to those who were already in exile, urging them to pray for the prosperity of the city to which they had been forcibly removed. God gives them assurances. Judah itself, back in the land, has lost several battles, it's lost several kings. It's now an oppressed nation ruled by a succession of puppet kings. Suffering, intrigue and rebellion are everywhere. The nation had turned from their devotion to Yahweh, followed other gods and were now reaping what they had sown. The world was changing before their eyes. Soon the temple would be torn down. The city not just conquered, but decimated and destroyed. The kingdom of Judah would be no more. Apparently, apparently, God's covenant with David lies broken. Apparently. And only for those who don't understand. Because Jeremiah's first point is this. Number one, the kingdom will be restored. The city will be rebuilt. The palace, that symbol of the king and his kingdom, will stand in its proper place. And the people will break into songs of thanksgiving and rejoicing. And they will not decrease. They will increase. And they will not be ashamed. They will be honored. Their community will once again be established. You see, this exile was a defining 
historical disruptive moment. Historians and theologians today still speak of the pre-exile, the post-exile stories of Israel. Yet this exile would not have the final say. It's not an exaggeration to say that for us, we are living in our own defining historical moment. COVID-19 has brought our world to a dramatic halt. We don't yet know the cost of this invader. The moment we rightly focused on the saving of lives, but the scale of the social, economic, uh, cultural, political impact is far greater than we can see now. It will shape history. Yesterday morning, someone described it to me like living in a slow motion earthquake. You're seemingly safe. You're indoors, you're hidden, but by the time you get to leave home and you emerge, you find that the landscape has changed. Social, cultural, economic, political mountains will have moved. Rivers will have to find new paths in which they run. The world will be a different place. But don't be shaken. Don't be afraid. Why? Because the kingdom that matters most cannot be shaken. In fact, if we allow the Lord to use this time to restore our devotion, no matter what else happens, His kingdom will grow. You see, God does not forget covenants. The kingdom will endure. The kingdom, when it appears to take a knock, will be restored. And in times of difficulty and suffering, it may be advancing in ways that we don't even know or imagine. But the second key thing, and right at the heart of this passage, in the promise of things being made new and restored, when everything appears to be in complete upheaval and disruption, a leader emerges, a leader steps to the fore. And the defining description in Jeremiah chapter 30 and verse 21 about this leader is that he will be devoted. The leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will arise from among them. The Lord says, I will bring him near and he will come close to me. Because who is he who will devote himself to be close to the Lord? To be close to me, declares the Lord. You see, this new king, this new leader will be defined by his devotion. And by the Spirit, Jeremiah is pointing toward the one who would come to restore the kingdom covenant of David. To rule on his throne. And this king, this leader, would arise from among the people. You wouldn't recognize them because they're born in a palace. They will rise from among the people. And Jeremiah is quite simply pointing to Jesus. Jesus, who is both master and yet incredible mystery. 
the only man whose identity is God. We've established that. And he declares, John 10 verse 30, I and the Father are one. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 14 verse 6. He is fully and completely God and yet he is fully and completely and truly human. And in his humanity, he models what it looks like for someone to devote themselves to being close to the Lord, to living in a way that the Lord has always intended. We see, for example, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Jesus devoted. Luke 6 verse 12, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. We could go through the Gospels and find multiple other ways in which he was devoted to being close to his Father. There's a few things we can say about devotion. Firstly, it's a matter of singleness of purpose. You know, business people, musicians, sports stars, artists, scientists, charity workers, they're often most effective because they are most devoted. They have a focus. It shows. Devotion is, and we've seen this, about time, giving time. Discipleship, connection to the Father is time intensive. It's not something you're going to be able to rush on by. It's something that you give to Him as an extension of love. You see, when something is focused, it is also love. One of the things this focus does for us is it integrates all other aspects of our lives. It takes all that is good and blessed and strong and healthy. And we get to take those things and, and through the lens of our devotion, we bring together the things that matter most. We can see our work, our rest, our celebrations and sorrows, our connections and community, all of which are valuable to be received as blessings. Now as extensions of and expressions of our devotion to God. Because devotion to the highest point integrates everything underneath it. That's why you don't want to be devoted to anything less than that which is supreme. You want to give yourself to that which matters most. Into one primary purpose. Jesus devoted himself to being close to the Father. But devotion is also about dealing with the competition. We see this probably more in the life of Samuel. Jesus was tempted in a way, sorry, I'm getting interference on my screen. Jesus was tempted, but, and, but, but his devotion was never compromised. But we find ourselves compromised by the competition. 
And so a human example of having to deal with the competition so that our devotion may be redeemed is that of the prophet Samuel. I mean, this guy's mom devoted him, dedicated him to the Lord before he was even conceived, let alone born. And so he enters the Lord's service, but he does so in a religious context where it's devoid of devotion. And Eli, the priest in charge, is half-hearted. By that I mean he hear, he wants to hear, he even almost bullies Samuel into telling him something that Samuel heard in a dream. But at the same time, he, he has no intention of doing what the Word of God is calling him to do. His sons were even worse. Hophni and Phinehas were hard-hearted priests who couldn't care about God and His Word. And Samuel has to learn in this context of half-hearted and hard-hearted people what it is to be whole-hearted in your devotion to the Lord. And his defining moment of leadership is found in 1 Samuel chapter 7. Where the, enemies, uh, the enemies of Israel, the Philistines, had captured the Ark of the Covenant. And, and then they found out that the presence of God is not something you mess with. <laughs> In fact, it's something that can mess with you. And so the ark is returned to Israel. And we read in 1 Samuel chapter 7, Then all the people of Israel turned back to Yahweh. They turned back to the Lord. But Samuel knows that there is a problem that must be dealt with. They must also deal with and turn from the competition. So Samuel says to the Israelites, if you returning to the Lord, notice the wholeheartedness here, with all of your hearts, then rid yourselves of these alien gods and the Ashtoreths and commit yourselves, devote yourselves to the Lord. Serve him alone, serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and the Ashtoreths and served Yahweh only. That's the point about devotion. You can't allow competition with God. The people wanted to return to God. They wanted to connect with God. Samuel says then deal with the competition. At our online elders meeting on Friday morning, Andrew, our pastor to Classic Congregation, said this about what he saw God doing. I'd asked the elders, what do you see God doing? He said, our props are being taken away. We are finding out again what it means to trust the Lord and trust the Lord alone. God is dealing with our idols. The other thing about devotion is that it often starts and is born in solitude. Jesus went alone up the mountain to pray. So many people of God, that doesn't mean that our gathering together is unimportant, but that our gathering together so often is fueled by what is given and birthed in the place of being alone with God. 
You see, devotion starts in solitude, but always bears communal fruit. In the prophecy we've read, it's true. The nation will be healed and restored. Why? Because there's a leader who's willing to devote himself to be close to Yahweh. Samuel changed a nation. He shifted them from half-heartedness, hard-heartedness into this whole-heartedness. Solitude, the place in which our devotion is often tested, is the gift of being alone with God without being lonely. Jesus' ministry flowed from these times of intimacy and solitude. Some of us are afraid of devotion. Its price seems too high. We, we don't want to surrender our props. We don't want to deal with the competition. Frankly, we're afraid we might end up isolated or lonely. I've got to admit, of course, at the moment that other people feel themselves to be in a relational pressure cooker, being forced to sustain close communal contact. Some of us are fortunate enough to be doing this with our family. Some people are doing this in contexts that we can hardly imagine. And they just can't seem to find a release valve. My take on whether it's loneliness or a relational pressure cooker is this, that both loneliness and damaged community have this in common. We're looking to people to heal our hearts. We're looking to people to change in damaged communities so that we can be happy. We're looking to people to fill up the emptiness we, we, we feel when we find ourselves alone. Devotion takes us to Jesus, who can heal our hearts and reposition us both for solitude and for community. There is much more on this in the notes. And so if you go into the daily reading notes, you will see that we look at hiddenness. We, we look at rest. We look at work. We look at celebration. But in terms of our passage today, the kingdom will be restored because a leader is devoted. And, point number three, a judgment will come that accomplishes the purposes of God's heart. Verse 23, back in Jeremiah chapter 30. See the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In the days to come, the Spirit of the Lord tells us through Jeremiah, in the days to come, you will understand this. Jeremiah foresees a judgment that will release the rebirth of the people of God. One day, People are going to see this one day. People are going to understand that that judgment was absolutely essential to fully accomplish the purposes that are inside God's heart. And this is a storm. This is a fury like no other. 
but it is going to bring something like no other. For we will be his people and he will be our God. And the New Testament tells us once we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. What has happened between this prophecy and that promise? Jeremiah is pointing again to Jesus, who, as we saw at the beginning of the series in 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. And he takes upon and into himself all our transgressions, all our iniquities, every wrong thought, every wrong action, everything we've messed up. And he atones for it. He pays for it. And he does so for love. He does so for the love of the Father. On the night he's betrayed, he says that the world must learn that I love my Father and I do exactly what he says. And he does so for the love of his bride. The love of this people who are not yet a people. Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 25 Paul is using exquisite theology to help us in our home relationships and he says husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless and the outcome of this love this atoning love this redeeming love this cleansing love is peace and joy Guys, many people are looking for peace right now. They're looking for the peace of God. And here's the pointer. If you want the peace of God, you need to receive peace with God. And we do that by an act of faith in which we surrender ourselves and we devote ourselves utterly to the God who has surrendered himself for us. Now I know some of us may be struggling as we hear this. We're thinking of surrender as defeat. We're afraid of the cost of devotion. No, devotion is a freedom. In the notes, there's a prayer I wrote 20 years ago. Father, teach me the freedom of devotion and the power of simplicity, the peace of an undivided heart and the joy of wanting only one thing. You're wrestling. You're thinking it's a defeat, but you don't realize that you're going to gain access to the greatest victory that history has ever known because you gain access says Romans chapter 5 and verse 2 into the grace in which God's people now stand and in English the 
grace has been turned into an acronym, God's riches at Christ's expense. But maybe listening to that full passage in Romans 5, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, in other words, our sin has been cancelled and we've been credited with the righteousness of Jesus, we have peace with God. We have peace with God. We want the peace of God, but he's first offering us the peace with God. The fight is over and the yielding and the surrender can begin. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And the word glory carries not just... Uh, transcendent senses it's also it's joy so intense that we describe it as glory and not only so but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance perseverance character and character hope and hope does not disappoint us it does not put us to shame another translation because God's love has been into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us if you are wanting the peace of God then because Jesus took a judgment that we now have come to understand it was a judgment that births a people for God it was a judgment that restores a kingdom it was a judgment poured out on Jesus the one who was devoted to being close to the Father and the one who is devoted to you. And he has made it possible for you to find peace with God and the peace of God. I would like to lead you in a prayer. You see, the challenge is not just to go, Oh God, thank you for your devotion to me. Thank you for your willingness to go the full distance. Thank you that nothing was too much for you. But in this journey of discipleship, that same cross, that same love comes to energize us and challenge us. And he calls us to be completely and fully devoted to him. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did not consider his position and his divinity as something he held on to. He surrendered that for us. And in his obedience and devotion and love for you, he revealed your love for us. Lord, we want to set aside, lay aside, confess and repent of all other lesser ambitions, all other devotions, all other idols. Father, we, we nail those to the cross of Jesus. We confess them. We ask you to forgive us as we break all agreements with them and turn away from those lesser things. Help us to integrate all that is good and beautiful into this supreme life of devotion to you. 
Lord, thank you that all things that are good are to be found in you. We turn from all that is less than you and set our hearts on you. Thank you that we can receive not just the peace of God, but that because of Jesus we have peace with God. And having peace with God means we too have access to the grace, the power, the mercy that defines Jesus. Amen.